0: Historically, technology has not impacted healthcare, has not transformed how we practice medicine, and that has created an opportunity. When I looked at this space in 2015 and 2016, I saw technology that had huge potential. Artificial intelligence, virtual reality, all of these emerging technologies looked like they could dramatically change how medicine was trained, how medicine was practiced, how patients interact with their physicians
1: but this had not yet been widely adopted. Hey everybody, and welcome to The Slice, a podcast about the people behind innovation in healthcare. I'm your host, Justin Barad, co-founder and CEO of OsoVR, orthopedic surgeon, and pizza enthusiast. Each week, we hear the thrilling stories of innovators driving change and improving health around the world. Let's get started. Today, I'm very excited to announce that we have Sonny Kumar here on the show. Sonny is a healthcare investor and partner at GSR Ventures. He's also a physician uh, with his MD from Stanford and several publications about technology and medicine. In addition to all of that, Sonny has an MBA from Stanford as well and is a seasoned entrepreneur. So Sonny, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you, and I'm delighted to be here. Well, we're lucky to have you and I'm really excited to dig in. I really want to start on the entrepreneurial side because it sounds like you've had a bit of an itch in innovation and entrepreneurship since pretty early age. So I'm kind of curious, when did you first know that you were interested in entrepreneurship and innovation?
0: Well, to be honest with you, I actually somewhat stumbled into entrepreneurship actually in college with my first company being in the grocery delivery space. As much as that sounds uh, very unrelated to healthcare, I actually came through a healthcare angle specifically while I was in college in New Haven. I was working on a public health mapping project and unfortunately at the time we had discovered that with the closure of one of the largest grocery stores in the area, there was No access to fresh food or produce for all of downtown New Haven. That led uh, us with the School of Public Health determining that there was a significant need for the population to be able to access healthy foods and healthy produce. So putting on my technology hat, decided that there was probably a way to solve this through. An entrepreneurial solution and with several of my colleagues ended up founding a company the closer grocer to provide access to these healthier food options through a web-based interface so folks could go online order foods and have it delivered directly to them today that doesn't sound particularly innovative But at this time, over a decade ago, this was a relatively novel concept. And we were, although a relatively small enterprise, fairly successful at being able to bring healthier foods at scale to the broader New Haven population. Even though it was our first, or at least my first attempt at entrepreneurship, really kind of got me started down this journey of looking at how we can use startups, how we can use businesses and enterprises to deliver good at scale and got me set on this path that I'm now uh, following today.
1: Well, I'm amazed you're not more on a path of marketing and coming up with names for startups because Closer (laughs) Grocer is way catchier than Instacart, in my opinion.
0: We probably had something going for us with the name alone there.
1: I was thinking as I was just like thinking about this interview and coming in and talking to you is there's this, everyone always is talking about innovation. It's like a buzzword. But coming up with ideas and innovation and entrepreneurship I think are different things, right? So I'm kind of curious, like what do you see as the delineation between the two or the relationship? I see the ideation phase as the first a critical, but just the first
0: step to entrepreneurship and innovation. It is so critical to come up with the right idea, but the idea only takes you so far. And in my opinion, actually, the bulk of the work to really bring innovation to fruition comes much further down the road after the ideation phase. Actually, in my opinion, the hardest thing to do to actually bring an idea to fruition is figure out how to align incentives properly in order to ultimately scale that idea into something that can have true impact. I have a very biased perspective, but my perspective ultimately is that in order to have truly scalable impact, you have to have something that can ultimately be driven by commercial viability, and finding the right alignment of factors that will allow an idea to scale
1: in that manner is no easy feat. Yeah, it's very interesting, the the age-old debate of ideas versus execution, which I, I hear come up a lot. So closer, grosser, timing may have been off, amazing idea, clearly the right idea right now. There are huge platforms out there that do this. So you're onto something, you're getting good ideas, or you're executing them to a certain degree. Sounds like a public health component, but I'm curious, like when, when did you decide that you're like, hey, I'm really interested in healthcare and that kind of area or domain? Is that something you've always cared about? Or how, how did that come to be?
0: It's something I've always cared about, but interestingly from a slightly different angle. I actually primarily was pursuing this from a scientific angle, actually for many years even prior to college, coming at this from a research perspective, spending much of my time in the lab, actually working on basic science. One of the pivotal moments for me involved a research study that I actually ended up conducting in rural Ghana as part of a global health project I was doing at Yale. Specifically, we were looking at hookworm infection and the advent of treatment resistance of this disease in the population in Ghana. But as part of this broader study, we were working directly with the populations, working directly with the families in these villages, and understanding what human dynamics were also contributing to the development of resistance in this population. What was pivotal for me was that human interaction to me ended up being so rewarding. And as much as I loved the science and the value that that science would create ultimately down the road, that realization that everything I was doing ultimately was designed to help these people, to me, just could not be separated from the ultimate goal of what was motivating me. So that ended up pivoting my overall trajectory a little bit. I ended up from pursuing primarily a research career to one that was driven primarily by the medicine side of it. And that ended up with me coming to Stanford to pursue my medical degree, which led to my current path here today.
1: So if, first of all, you're giving me serious imposter syndrome. So (laughs) that's amazing. At some point, did you just wake up and you're like, Hey, I, I want to do basic science in healthcare and I really want to understand disease processes. And, and then you came to this realization, kind of like, where did that come from? Was that really that spontaneous or were there people in your family who were involved in science and healthcare? I was very fortunate, actually
0: very early on in my career you know, so early on, actually in middle school, I partook in a a training program that was sponsored by the NIH called the Physician Scientist Training Program. It sounds a little bit indoctrinating uh, as early as middle school, but really the goal of this program was to introduce young students to science, the the scientific method, how to think about this, and just get people excited about the notion of discovery. What I found is true is that uh, for better or worse, the way most of how science is taught is rote memorization learn the underpinnings of physics, biology, chemistry, by just reading what's already been discovered. In actuality, how science is conducted in the professional world is discovery. You know, you're actually investigating. You're trying to say, not just what do we already know, but what can we learn and discover? And to me, that was a game changer. It was a shift from, okay, let me read and understand what's happened before, to let me look forward and see what can we discover ahead. And to me, that was a dramatic change in perspective on what science could offer. And that's what pushed me down that pathway. Going from there, it was just a matter of where I wanted to apply that approach of discovery. And ultimately, I found that while I loved the basic science, I found that the application to medicine, to the human impact that came with that, to be personally incredibly rewarding.
1: It's a fascinating story it's incredible what impact uh, programs like that can have. It's also very comforting for me because when I tell my story about my career, I also started middle school and I'm like, is that a weird (laughs) thing to bring up with people? But if you're doing it, I'm cool.
0: Probably a little bit weird. We're just in that weirdness (laughs)
1: together. (laughs) That actually could be completely true. That's hilarious. Okay. So be honest with me. At some point, you're like, okay, I think I want to be a doctor. I'm going to be apply to medical school. How excited were your parents? Oh, they were thrilled. Uh, You know, I think. (laughs)
0: I was fortunate, you know, I actually didn't come from a a family of physicians, so I didn't have undue pressure to pursue that. But I still think that from an expectations perspective, they loved the idea of, you know, their son going and pursuing the path of a a physician. I'll Uh, bookmark that because, uh, you know, that may have led to some interesting discussions later down the road when I ended up pivoting slightly from that.
1: Oh, well, now I can't wait to get to (laughs) that. But yeah. (laughs) It's just a fascinating dynamic. I had something very similar. I mean, there was literally dancing involved. It's totally wild. So you get into Stanford, incredible work. I did go to Cal for undergrad, go bears, but you know, I still (laughs) respect and you want to have an impact on people. And you had that, I don't know, you tell such a good story and that great realization, but now you're going through medical school and I'm guessing you're having other experiences because you definitely did not go down a traditional path. So How was medical school and and what did you start seeing that started just getting you thinking? Interestingly enough, actually, my medical school
0: experience in and of itself did not dramatically change my path, except for what it enabled. The big change for me was being within the Stanford ecosystem. There is a opportunity to pursue training outside of the traditional four-year medical school curriculum and many students choose to take advantage of this this can be done in a variety of different fields and specialties including additional research years additional degrees and what i opted to do was actually end up in choosing to pursue a MBA or a business degree. My primary motivation for this was just to give me broader exposure. You know, I had had the opportunity to dive deep into research. And while you can never do enough research, I had felt that I had a deep enough understanding of that to really be able to fully appreciate what there was to that side of medicine. And I really just wanted to see what else was there out there. So that led me to pursue something, at least from a Broad perspective, very different from the traditional clinical training pathway. So, had the opportunity to apply to and join the Stanford GSB. And the beauty of that program was that it just exposed me to so many. Different ways of thinking about opportunities and applications of skill sets and areas of expertise. And I took full advantage of that. So I had the opportunity to found another startup, which I can tell you more about, specifically looking at using technology to monitor patients after they've been discharged from the hospital with the goal of preventing them from being unnecessarily readmitted. I also had the opportunity to explore the investing world, spending some time in the biotech investing world with Longitude Capital as well as in the early stage digital health investing world with GSR Ventures, where I eventually ended up, and a number of other experiences that to me were pivotal in shaping my ultimate decision of the path I wanted to pursue. But I think the biggest impact for me was just being here in Silicon Valley, being part of the Stanford ecosystem, and just being so part of this entrepreneurial World that I just couldn't escape it myself. You know, as I mentioned, I ended up founding another startup as part of my training. And one thing that really influenced how I looked at the world was just seeing the potential of technology and healthcare. You know this just about better than anybody else, but historically, technology has not impacted healthcare, has not transformed how we. Practice medicine. And that, in my opinion, has created an opportunity. When I looked at this space in 2015 and 2016, I saw technology that had huge potential. Artificial intelligence, virtual reality, all of these emerging technologies looked like they could dramatically change how medicine was trained, how medicine was practiced, how patients interact with their physicians. But this had not yet been widely adopted. So there was a pivot point. I was looking at this world and saying, well, do i think i could have an impact in bringing this technology to healthcare as a physician as a clinician on the front lines of care or as somebody more on the business side of the world helping bring these technologies into the healthcare ecosystem and personally i just found that the the latter ended up appealing more strongly to my skill set and i think having a greater opportunity to have outsized impact at least with my personal contributions
1: I really want to unpack a lot of this because so much happened in your medical school experience that I think is just so relevant to everybody listening to this today. I wonder if your experience can help them as they go down this journey of how do I get involved? How do I have an impact here? How do I learn more? And you just had such a concentrated experience and went through all that, uh, what feels like so quickly. So I think the first thing I want to ask about, and I get a lot of questions about, is around the idea of an MBA. Like, a lot of people, both physicians and non-physicians who are interested in entrepreneurship and innovation specifically, ask me if they should get an MBA. I don't have an MBA, to be clear. So I'm like, oh, I mean, I don't know. I hear the parties are great. From my perspective, what's interesting is when I was applying to med school and residency, to have something like an MBA like on your CV or your resume was seen as a very bad thing people would be like, oh, you're into business, like you don't care about patients or like you spent a year doing something that was non-medical, like you're not really dedicated to the cause. I think those attitudes have changed significantly. But I think, you know, those are two questions I have for you is what are attitudes like out there in the medical world towards same things like MBAs? And if people are interested in innovation or entrepreneurship, is this something that they, they should get that they don't need? What are your thoughts there? I'll first preface all of my answers by saying that this is a
0: very personal decision to make. At the end of the day, I can provide my perspective, but it's going to be very dependent on your individual set of circumstances, your goals, what you're optimizing for. There's no one right or wrong answer, and it just depends on what you are looking to optimize for on your own journey. That said, the stigma that you mentioned where MBAs or or those who have pursued other opportunities in addition to the traditional clinical training or research career has persisted in medicine. And it used to be quite drastic where many specialties, especially surgical specialties like the ones you pursued, Justin, were known to view MBAs relatively un favorably. I don't want to overly generalize, but what I've heard is that a lot of this has to do with just how they view someone's commitment and transparently how they view someone's quote-unquote flight risk from the program. The reality is that surgical training or any training is quite difficult, and every resident's going to have Sometime during their training where they have to make the decision whether or not this is the right thing for them. And what I found, and I think this is backed up by the data, is that MBAs just have more options available to them. And when they come to that decision point, they may be more likely to choose to explore other opportunities. And that's what's fed into the stigma. Now, this does not mean that MBAs are definitively Likely to not pursue or complete their residency training. It does not mean that MBAs make worse physicians than non-MBAs by any means. But some of these uh, factors have led to the stigmas that that you mentioned. I do think that's starting to change. I think the physicians as a whole are recognizing that they need to be more active in uh, influencing how medicine is practiced, not just in their own day-to-day, you know, care but in how the hospitals they're working at are run, how policy is set. And that is leading them to be more accepting towards folks um, who get the MBA training or otherwise. But that's still happening relatively gradually. So my overall summary answer to this is that, yes, there are still going to be physicians. Yes, there's still going to be programs that view the MBA as a stigma, but that is starting to change. And depending on what you're specifically looking to optimize for, it is very likely you can find a program that's aligned with your long-term goals. To answer your second question about the MBA, the reason that I chose to pursue the MBA was that I found that my clinical training, while fantastic for exposing me to the science and the practice of medicine, gave me relatively little insight into the business of medicine, into accounting, into finance, into strategic thinking. And increasingly, I believe these are critical components to healthcare broadly. And I found that the MBA was a fantastic way to get exposure to all of those concepts in a relatively concentrated manner. That said, it is certainly not the only way to get access to all of that information. Actually, I would say probably one of the best ways to get access to that information is to do what you did, Justin, and go out and found a startup. And of course, there are other ways to do so as well, whether that's through industry, through consulting, or through a variety of other careers. The pursuit of an MBA just being one of those, but in my opinion, being uh, one of the more efficient ways to get access to all of that information relatively quickly.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting doing entrepreneurship, not having an MBA. And you come in not really knowing how things are supposed to be or typically are. And so one of the classic examples I could give is I would just watch videos on startups or read things. And the first thing is like, remote companies don't work. You have to be, everyone has to be in person. (laughs) And as you know, OsoBR is fully remote and and partially because it's just not knowing what the standards are, like what people expect. You're just trying to make it work. And it's like, I wonder if i had had an mba if i would have had that kind of freedom of thought to have made some decisions like that so that's one thing i'm curious about when you go down that track yeah it's a great question my view on
0: that is that startups are the best environment in which to experiment I think the advice that you may have heard about or read is probably true, at least historically, for relatively large companies. If you took a existing company with several thousand employees and tried to turn it remote tomorrow, it would probably break. It would not work. You don't have the processes, you don't have the infrastructure, you don't have the culture set up. However, in a startup environment, especially a relatively early stage one, you can put in place all of those processes, that infrastructure, that culture early on in order to make that successful. And that's just one example. There are so many different other areas in which you can experiment and move quickly in a startup environment that gives you so much more freedom to experiment and explore. So I agree with you that the MBAs by nature tend to be relatively retrospective looking at what worked in the past. In general, although this is now starting to change, they tend to look at what has worked well for large companies in the past, whereas most of the innovation, not just from the actual technology, but how business is done, is happening with early-stage startups, and that's where you might find new ways of
1: doing things such as going remote first. Wow, well, that was really an awesome deep dive on MBAs. Thanks. So we're still in this med school phase of your life, you had the opportunity to get an MBA, and you also had the opportunity to follow up closer, grosser with your second startup. If you could just lead off with the clever name for this startup, and then maybe tell us a little bit about it. Sure. The name for this startup was WaveMedics, and this was based off of using
0: audio waves, given we were a voice-based platform, in order to monitor and track the treatment of patients. So specifically, as some of your audience members may be familiar with, the Affordable Care Act had a provision that was looking to incentivize the appropriate discharge and treatment of patients. So specifically, what they put in there was that any health system that had an abundance, an overabundance of patients that were readmitted with a chronic disease within 30 days of discharge would be penalized for that readmission, including not being reimbursed for that readmission. One of the challenges is that the health system that I was a part of had a significant percentage of patients above the national average when it came to that level of readmission. This was partially driven by the fact that this health system was seeing some of the sickest patients and the sicker the patient, the more likely they are to be readmitted. However, the Affordable Care Act did not discriminate on the severity of illness for the patients. They just looked at the national average and compared to your level of readmission to that baseline. As a result, the system decided to put in place a very effective program to reduce the level of readmission by having nurses call and visit patients post-discharge, and that was very effective. What it did was it reduced the level of readmissions from significantly above the national average to below the national average. However, this program was very expensive. Unfortunately, because the time the nurses needed to spend to call and follow up with these patients was significant, the overall cost of the program was so high that even with the penalty, the program was actually losing money. What we were looking to do was use a technology solution to significantly decrease that cost. So specifically at that time, smart speakers, specifically the Amazon Alexa speaker, had just come out. And the beauty of this was that you could use the smart speaker to interact with the patient, collect information, process that information, and then use that process information to guide treatment. Just to be clear, the smart speaker or even the system was not determining treatment. But it was using that data collection system to give the correct information far more efficiently to the care team to allow them to make the right decisions. What we found was that this system of collection was about 100x more efficient from a cost perspective in collecting that information. And it can be done far more scalably than any other you know, human-driven system that had come before it. This was extremely exciting for us because now not only could you expand the program to from just the, the sickest of the sick patients to all patients with these chronic diseases, you could potentially expand this to all patients, period. So we were very excited about the potential to rapidly scale up this business. However, we ended up running into the worst thing that can happen to an early-stage healthcare company, which was a regulatory issue. And this was common for emerging technology companies in healthcare, which is that there was ambiguity about how this technology would be regulated. Specifically, at the time these speakers were released, it was unclear if they were HIPAA compliant. As you know, today, if A nurse or a member of the care team were to call a patient, they verify that the person they're speaking to on the other line is the patient by asking relatively basic but fundamental information from the patient, such as their name or their date of birth. The smart speaker system can ask the same questions and can verify that against the database. However, at least at the time, because the system was being done by technology and not by a person, the FDA was not willing to say that this was uh, equivalent to a human authorization. And while it was initially ambiguous, they ended up determining that this was not a HIPAA-compliant system. They have fortunately started to revisit that, and as of 2019, are looking at developing uh, HIPAA-compliant applications for smart speakers. However, we just ended up being a little bit too early for that. So while we were thrilled about the promise of this technology and what it could do, we ended up shutting down that company. However, I found the experience of
1: operating
0: in this extremely early but promising health tech environment to be an incredible learning opportunity.
1: It's just so fascinating with both of your entrepreneurial experiences. Timing was such a big part of it. I think this is probably a question a lot of entrepreneurs ask themselves just constantly. Like, did I do this or was I lucky? You know, and (laughs) trying to figure out like how much from each. And, you know, I have no doubt if you did either one of those things and just maybe like a year or two down the road, you may have a very different story. I don't know. What is you. You work with so many entrepreneurs now. Where do you see the balance there between those two buckets?
0: Yeah, the honest answer is it's going to be a bit of both. But the truth of it is the best entrepreneurs can make some of their own luck. And while I certainly, in my case, you don't want to be dependent on a regulatory decision coming down in your favor, being able to understand the environment and understand how it'll evolve, being able to take the right bets. A lot of this is going to be operating off of imperfect information, but being able to understand where you're going to place those bets, where you're going to make a decision off the imperfect information you have can help differentiate some of the best entrepreneurs from some of the rest.
1: So saved, maybe not necessarily the best for last, but maybe the most intense for last, I'm sure. And we alluded to this earlier in the interview, but you're going through med school, you're having these experiences with your MBA and your VC internships or externships. And you're beginning to realize, it sounds like that Not only did you have this realization that you want to apply science to humans and have that human impact, but with technology, you can do that at scale and you can have a much bigger impact than you can on a person-to-person basis. And you can combine all these different skills. And at some point, you had to make the decision that you're not going to pursue what is probably expected to you of everyone, which is formal clinical training. And you're going to do something very different. That is a little cliche in in our area, like, you know, the Silicon Valley and everything, but for the rest of the world and I'm sure for your family is pretty intense. And I just want to say from in my entire life, this is one of the the scariest things that I ever had to deal with is making a decision to you, know, you put so many years into something and it's it really is quite hard. And then suddenly you're deciding, hey, I'm gonna not do that or or put that at risk to do something that I believe in or am very passionate about, and that a lot of people in my life are. Maybe not fully supportive of or have questions about. So you know, take your time because this is something I think that this is probably what I get contacted about the most. I, I have complete strangers reach out who are physicians, residents, people who are done with training, halfway through their training about to start training. and they have an opportunity or an idea or a feeling, and they're very stressed out because they love medicine and they've dedicated so much and there's so much pressure on them. but they have this feeling like they need to pursue this thing. And what do they do? Do they try and do both? Do they just pick one? And and how do they make that decision? So really take your time here because I think this is really what I want people to be able to hear that if anyone's listening to this, I imagine a lot of people are thinking that they're going to be in this situation or currently in this situation. I do want to acknowledge just upfront that At the end of the day, I was
0: incredibly privileged to be able to choose between two incredible career paths, whether that be clinical medicine and practicing as a physician, or pursuing something more on the entrepreneurial or uh, entrepreneurial investment side of things. That said, it was actually not an easy decision for me, uh, one that was made maybe even more challenging by the fact that I actually loved clinical practice. You know, I, I alluded to this back with that pivotal decision shaped by that experience in Ghana that I actually just love taking care of patients, interacting with patients, having that human connection that I think is very difficult to get um, in anything other than clinical practice. So it's it was by no means an easy decision. For me, the biggest factor was where did I think I could have the most impact? And at the end of the day, I think what a physician does is absolutely incredible. You know, the amount of training, the amount of time, energy, money that's spent to get a physician to the point where he or she can practice at the top of their license is incredible. It's it's so much um, energy, time, money, effort in order to get there. That said, the way that physicians practice typically is on a one-to-one basis. And what I found for me personally is just doing the math, there was only so many patients that I could take care of in a day, in a year, even in a lifetime. You know, that number could be measured in the thousands, maybe even in the tens of thousands, but was difficult to go beyond that. You know, maybe over the course of my life, a hundred thousand at absolute most, but not beyond that what really excited me about the technology and entrepreneurial side of the world was if I was successful in what I was able to do, I saw a path by which I could impact hundreds of thousands, millions. And if I was truly successful, maybe even tens of millions, hundreds of millions, possibly even billions of lives. And that level of transformative impact I thought was a true, true game changer. So at the end of the day, I wanted to try and create as much good as possible when I look back 30 years or 50 years from now. And for me personally, I thought the way to do that was to go down this path. That said, there were still a lot of challenges. Uh, One of the largest, which I had bookmarked earlier, was explaining this to my family who uh, had supported me and directly invested in me um, throughout this entire journey. Uh, it is no easy feat to tell them after, you know, all the many years of college and medical training that I was now uh, about to not abandon that, but leave that aside to pursue something while adjacent was on a different path. At the end of the day, I think what was effective for me was just showing how this could lead to a similar type of impact in the in the human aspects. So actually big, improving people's lives, but doing it at a much bigger scale. And at least that was what resonated to me and, and also resonated with the people I cared about. So again, this is going to be a very personal decision, both for individuals and their families and their loved ones. But at the end of the day, that potential for outsized impact was what drove my personal decision.
1: How did your peers in med school react? And, and how did some of like your mentors and instructors, what were their reactions?
0: as part of this process, I spoke to as many mentors and instructors as I could. What really stood out to me was uh, many of the folks I spoke to were happy, both on the practicing side and on the investing or entrepreneurial side. But uniquely, one piece of advice that I got was from the physicians themselves, which was if there was something else that you could see yourself doing that would be satisfying to you, that would make you happy, You should go do that. And interestingly enough, that was only from the physicians that did not come from the entrepreneurial side of it. I think this just has to do with many of the challenges and sacrifices that are unique to medicine. Like I said, you know, it's an incredibly rewarding and incredibly meaningful career, but it is a challenging one. And what I found is the, those that, you know, recognize the, beauty of the career also recognized those challenges. And on the peer side, it was very interesting, Uh, maybe similar to what you've heard. I I heard from many of my peers, many from my friends and colleagues that they were curious about this, that many of them actually wanted to explore this themselves, but they didn't have the infrastructure or they didn't see the path to doing so. And I think that that's one thing that at least uh, generally speaking, our training programs fail to make available to medical trainees. Part of that is for a good reason, you know, all of this time and energy and effort expended by the trainees is also expended by the trainers to get future physicians ready to practice and certainly you need those physicians practicing in order to, you know, maintain the level of care that we hope to deliver. At the same time, I believe many of our programs kind of put uh, trainees down a relatively narrow path without a lot of visibility into what those alternatives may be. And I think increasingly, my peers, at least, are interested in learning about what those options are. So one thing I want to do is at least make those options available to my colleagues, not necessarily steer them down that path, not necessarily even encourage them to pursue those options, but at least let them know what's out there so that they can make their own informed decisions in accordance to what's best for them.
1: Yeah, that was actually one of the questions I had for you is I see two elements to the challenge where one is a lack of education and training. And what an incredible opportunity we have where you have people, I mean, I think it's a little too long, but you know, in med school for four years, maybe in training for five years, and why not use some of that time to learn about technology, learn about business and entrepreneurship. The other challenges that at the tail end of it, there's no role, there's no structure for people that do those things. So if they do want to pursue these activities that are considered kind of non-traditional, they do have to do kind of what you did and what I did in order to do so. And I'm like, is there a way to set up something a lot like someone who wants to be a physician scientist, where I'm not going to be taking care of patients. I have an MD, but I'm just going to be doing research and there's value to that. And I'm kept within the system rather than having to eject myself and having everyone felt like that I was a flight risk and I took flight. You know, Can we change that story? I certainly have a very biased perspective, but my view is that the practice of medicine is
0: changing. You know, the world is very different today than it was, you know, certainly 20 or 30 years ago where a physician would uh, complete their training, set up a private practice and then practice in that setting for the entirety of his or her career. Today, you know, most of medicine is done in an institutional setting where most of the administrative decisions are not made by the physicians. My view of the world is that the physicians are increasingly recognizing that those decisions are not made by folks who deeply understand patient care. Now, this is not to disparage them at all. You know, They're doing what they believe is best for the overall healthcare ecosystem in order to continue to provide care. But what I've seen as a consequence of that is now physicians are recognizing that they need to inform themselves, educate themselves, and train themselves with the skill set to be able to maintain some degree of influence and autonomy in those environments. And I've seen a gradual shift in the landscape Towards being more supportive of physicians choosing to pursue a complementary skill set in addition to clinical practice, whether that be in the business world, whether that be in the political uh, or policy arena, whether that be across entrepreneurship or in the technical world. And I think at the end of the day, all of these are going to be complementary to the physician skill set. And my personal view is all of these areas of expertise and practice are going to be strengthened by being complemented by that. Uh, medical training. So my hope is that we actually see more folks uh, going down the path of combining their medical training with all of these different career paths and pursuing both of them to some degree jointly.
1: Yeah, certainly as now an entrepreneur and a CEO with a medical degree and and all of that experience, it's both helped and hurt me, right? There's a lot I had to unlearn. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of education that needs to take place for healthcare professionals who want to get involved about like, okay, here's Here's what not to do to be helpful. And I learned all that firsthand. There's a lot that I gleaned from that intense training that is an incredible asset that I think would be pretty hard to get anywhere else that I'm really grateful for. I mean, one of the things that comes up as kind of a leader of an organization is just the ability to talk about hard things with people. You know, it's actually not... Something that people really do on a day to day basis, but we both have training and kind of are forced into situations where those become very normalized for us because we're doing it so frequently. So it's kind of caught me off guard. It was like a couple of years in, and people are like, wow, I can't believe how easy it was to talk to you about X subject. And I'm like, is that a hard thing for people? You know? And so I think there's a lot we bring to the table, but there's also a lot that we need to learn. And the rest of the world moves so much faster than medicine. So, Sonny, you started out in science, got interested in having a human impact, went to medical school found out you fell in love with technology and having an impact and that you can really do that through investing. And incredibly and very impressively, are now a partner at GSR Ventures, part of their technology, healthcare technology group. So can you just tell us a little bit about what you actually do at GSR Ventures and and, and what GSR Ventures does as well?
0: Yeah, absolutely, Justin. So as, as you mentioned, we're a venture fund specifically in early stage technology-focused venture fund, where we look for companies, typically at the seed stage all the way through the series C stage, that are looking for capital to scale up enterprises that are going to have transformative impact in industry. So what I specifically do is look to partner with companies that are raising anywhere between a million dollars to $15 million from us with the goal of building technologies that are going to have a transformative impact in healthcare. What do I mean by that? So I'm looking for companies that are going to improve efficiency and delivery of healthcare services. They're going to do this not with 5% or 10% levels of improvement, but with 2x, 3x, 5x, in some cases 10x, or even 100x levels of improvement. And are going to do this at a sufficiently large scale to drive a meaningful impact in the overall healthcare ecosystem. As I mentioned, the heuristic that we use is we are looking for companies that are going to scale to a billion dollars, not just in market cap, but in revenue, with the idea being that only at that scale can you drive true outsized impact across healthcare more broadly. So what I hope to do is find those companies, partner with them, and then really spend years working closely with those entrepreneurs and founders as they scale their companies, sometimes even before they have a product or revenue, all the way through that company's journey, often through an exit scenario, whether that be an acquisition or ideally even an IPO as that company goes
1: public. Wow. For all of the people listening in that are going to reach out to you, reach out to me, maybe they're aspiring medical students or medical students, their PAs, their nurses, NPs, healthcare professionals of some kind, what advice do you have for them My one piece of advice is to look at building a complementary skill set. So I think,
0: you know, all the folks that you mentioned are going to have deep expertise in medicine or clinical practice to some degree. Look at and find what is that one other area that you're going to be able to differentiate yourself, whether that's a technical skill or ability, business skill or ability, policy expertise. There's a whole list and there's not one that's better or worse than the other. But what I find is that the providers who are really going to be able to differentiate themselves in this new world are those that are going to be able to be providers plus something else. And I would encourage any of the listeners here to look and find what's that skill set they want to develop and really
1: become truly differentiated in that area of expertise. Well, I think that's fantastic advice. And I think it's such good advice. And it's also kind of hard to tell people. I think having got to know you, like you're very good about just talking about some of these topics, but you get these people with a lot of passion, a lot of ideas, and sometimes you're like, is this really what you should be working on? And that can be very hard to tell someone because one, it's very personal when you have an idea or you've been working on something maybe for years. And two, you could be completely wrong, right? And this is like one one of the questions I have for you because like your job is literally kind of that. You know, there's a lot of things to what you do and I don't pretend to fully understand, but you're getting bombarded with thousands and thousands of ideas and concepts and companies. And they probably to any, most people seem like terrible ideas or even like a joke. But some of them are going to be the next transformative thing for us all and make everyone's lives better. And some may actually be quite silly. But how do you go about delineating between the two? Let me just be clear up front about one thing, which is I'm wrong all the time, which
0: is which is <laughs> a privilege that I get to have in my career and that I get the opportunity to to make those errors and make those mistakes. But In addition to being wrong, not infrequently, I also have the opportunity to be right and hopefully, when I'm right, be able to choose and and support companies that have a chance of making a huge transformative impact. And that ties into my answer to you, which is when at least from my perspective if you're going to pick a area in which to focus and really pour all of your energy in look and see you know what type of impact are you trying to create here the heuristic that i use and i've shared this with you already justin is that the type of Companies that I think are going to have a true outsized impact in healthcare are ones that are going to scale not just to a million, 10 million, $50 million in revenue, but a billion dollars plus in revenue, not just the market cap. And this is just a, a factor of how big healthcare is in the US you know, over $4 trillion in spend. Only at the sizes that I'm talking about are you going to be able to move the needle one way or the other. So that's the type of impact that I would encourage you all to seek. The second point that I think is directly related to that is how are you going to get there? And the one point that I would recommend all of uh, your audience and listeners focus on is what are the incentives at play for your customers, for your users, for the patients, to the extent possible, you need to have strong alignment across as many, ideally all, but sometimes it's not possible, but ideally as many of those parties as possible in order to truly be able to scale and reach the level of impact that i just mentioned. So uh, first, try and find something that you're passionate about. Second, aim for a truly meaningful impact. And third, look for an alignment of incentives that allow you to scale to that level of impact.
1: Wow, I feel like we just wrote a book there. It's amazing. Well, I think we're coming up on time. I have one last question for you, arguably the most important one, but this show is called The Slice. So, you know, I have to ask if you could only have one type of pizza for the rest of your life, what kind would it be?
0: Ooh, that's the question. Hmm.
1: Okay.
0: Well, I do have a, a great answer to this, uh, and this has to do with where I uh, trained in undergraduate, which was New Haven. And not everybody knows this, but New Haven is famous for New Haven style pizza, which is called a pizza there, and it is, in my opinion, the best pizza that you can get anywhere. Thin, crispy absolutely incredible. I'm going to say something very controversial next because there are some very strong opinions about where the best New Haven style pizza is, but my heart is with Pepe's. So uh, if I had to pick one place, place, I would stick with uh, Pepe's New
1: Haven style pizza. Well, (laughs) hopefully we don't get too much angry mail with your controversial (laughs) pizza comments. Wow, well, uh, you know that made me quite hungry and excited. I, I definitely have to try that out. So Pepe's, you heard it, everybody. You heard it here first at The Slice by Oso VR. But I wanna thank Dr. Sunny Kumar for being on the show and for sharing your story. I thought, incredible story that you have, and we're very lucky the impact you're having on the world today and the incredible technologies you're fueling. But hopefully some of the advice will be really helpful to listeners at home and how to navigate their own careers and, and how to approach difficult and personal decisions and how to have a meaningful impact. So thank you so much again, Sunny. Thank you for having me, Justin. It was truly a pleasure. Well, that was a really interesting conversation with Sonny Kumar. What I learned from that is there are all sorts of careers that you can have in healthcare innovation. And his path is interesting to me in a few ways. One in how entrepreneurship and innovation have been a part of his life since college, and from an early age, been constantly involved with new technologies and new companies, but also that you do have the option of not necessarily pursuing practice and and taking care of patients directly, but pursuing something a little bit different of investing in technologies and helping those technologies grow and become major worldwide businesses to have an even bigger impact that you can have than taking care of one patient at a time. The way that you make these decisions and the challenges associated with these diverging paths are very difficult, so it was interesting to get his perspective on how he approached it in order to really optimize and maximize his impact. But he's doing some incredible work today, and all the technologies that he's supporting are uh, really rapidly being distributed all around the world. Thank you to everyone who tuned in to today's episode. If you liked what you heard and want to know about the latest episodes, updates, and resources in the world of medtech, make sure to follow The Slice anywhere you can listen to podcasts. Follow OsoVR on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit us at our website at osovr.com. Special thanks to our producers, Rachel Roberts, Sterling Shore, and Shauna Davis. I'm your host, Justin Broad, and we'll see you next time on The Slice.